Right, praise God. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. Uh, we're looking at uh, verse 7 uh, this evening. And it's just, uh, when you understand, if you just looked at this verse and you weren't understanding, you know, what Paul was talking about because you just opened your Bible and read this verse, uh, it, would, it would still make a good point. But when you understand in its context, it just, you know, it just has so much meaning. And first we'll just look at the verse, because this is the verse we're on. Uh, the last verse we looked at uh, was verse 6. Speaking of Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Amen. Thank God he did, or we'd still be in chains. Amen. We'd still be in spiritual darkness and in the kingdom of Satan. But he gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. So we're getting some of the context here. Then verse 7, for this I was appointed, says Paul, as a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So just in that verse alone, we did read verse 6, and we've studied that. We've actually had, I think, a few different weeks on verse 6, two or three at least. And he says, for this I was appointed. Paul was appointed. Uh, we've talked about Paul being called as an apostle in chapter 1, so I won't get into his calling again other than to emphasize what he emphasizes, that he's appointed as a preacher and an apostle. The word preacher means herald. The Greek word speaks of a herald, one who announces. That Greek word was actually used of those who would announce, uh, would be an official that would announce something. They typically, uh, in the public square, they would be someone who was had a loud voice and, and uh, was used to uh, announce something and they were not to go beyond what they were called to announce. In fact, one of the early church fathers, Christostom, talks about how uh, the herald was not to say anything less or anything more than he, what he was given in the public world. And that is also true, obviously, in the church. Paul said, don't go beyond what's written, amen. But Paul's a herald for the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, amen, which is what a calling beyond any of the heralds in the first century that were heralds in the public square. And he's a herald, he's a preacher and an apostle. Greek words apostolos, and it's the word that means sent one. He's a sent one, and he's specifically sent by Jesus. And he says, I am telling the truth, I am not lying. And it's kind of peculiar sometimes when you come across a phrase like that, which Paul uses in 2 Corinthians, he also uses in Romans. He, a very similar phrase where he says, I'm not lying, or something, I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying. And it sounds like something when there's a dispute and somebody's being accused of something and they say, I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying. It's almost an emotional plea. And Paul is basically doubling down on the fact that he's been called as a herald and an apostle. And Paul just doesn't do this flippantly and this is just not part of his personality. This is something God is emphasizing through him. And it's also part of his makeup as the Holy Spirit uses him to declare what he's doing. And the reason Paul makes these emphases, if you look at where he says these things, for instance, I mentioned in Romans, and in 2 Corinthians, it's places where he was being questioned, his authority was being questioned by people that may want to reject what he's saying. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's apostleship, even though he uh, was the first one to share the gospel with the Corinthians, and he established that church, there were super apostles, so-called, were bringing a different gospel that Paul was uh, being basically sidelined by in, amongst the Corinthians uh, in many of their minds, and Paul was pointing out that these so-called super apostles were false apostles, 2 Corinthians 11. And he, much of 2 Corinthians is Paul's defense as to his calling. 
And that's why he makes a plea there about how he's telling the truth. He's not lying. Similar as that we have here. What's Paul dealing with here? 2 Timothy chapter 1, he's dealing with false teachers. He's even dealt with a couple of the leaders of this movement in the church at Ephesus. And they've been disciplined, verses 18 through 20 of chapter 1. And he's warning against their strange teachings. Uh, any strange teachings that are popping up, he tells Timothy to be on guard against them. Verse 3 of chapter 1. And he warns that these teachers have this very exclusivistic teaching, uh, uh, Judaism. Uh, they're, mis- they're, they're teaching, the, they're, they claim to be teachers of the law, but they themselves do not understand it, and so forth. So Paul is, again, saying, emphasizing that, hey, because he knows that he'll probably be challenged by these false teachers. And again, he's emphasizing his calling. And in Romans, Paul is dealing with uh, another little kind of more, I shouldn't say little, but maybe little in comparison to what was going on in Corinth as far as him being sidelined. He wasn't really being sidelined, but there was some dispute as to whether God was, you know, done with the Jews or not and what God was doing with regard to the Jews. And Paul's having to answer those questions and he's getting into some controversial things. And again, he makes this appeal. So I believe what Paul's doing here is he's saying, I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. I'm not, I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. He's emphasizing his calling. And then he says, as a teacher of who? The Gentiles. As a teacher of the Gentiles, the Gentiles were all the non-Jews. And Paul is a Jew. and He's being called to be a preacher to the Gentiles in faith and truth. You notice in chapter 1, verse 5, he talks about pursuing a sincere faith. Amen. Love from a pure heart, right? A good conscience and a sincere faith. And he's talking about how these false teachers are going into mythology and they're obsessed with genealogies and they're making mythologies out of these genealogies and they're taking people away from the truth and they're not sincerely called and sincerely following the Lord. So this verse is actually, there's a lot of interplay going on with the rest of the letter that's important. What I want to talk about here, and I wanted to deal with the actual text itself to a degree, but I also want to deal with the text in its broader context as well. Paul is called to be a preacher and an apostle. And then he, and then he doubles down, right? He says a preacher and a, a, an apostle. Then he says at the end of this verse, as a teacher. So you got preacher, apostle, and as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So Paul is called the apostle to the Gentiles. It's not that he didn't ever minister to the Jews. When you read the book of Acts, he also ministered to the Jews. Oftentimes, when you go through the book of Acts, you'll see that they started among the Jewish people, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek or the Gentile. Then they moved to the Gentiles. And Paul certainly shared with Jews as well. But he had a special mission whereby God was going to use him to bring the gospel to the Gentile people groups, the Gentile nations. And Paul was the greatest evangelist that ever lived. He sure fulfilled his mission in preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, it's interesting here when we look at this because... uh, He's making an argument still. So understand this context and help. Maybe this can, hopefully this will really bless our own lives and our own walks with Jesus today or this evening because Paul is actually making another argument as to why we should pray for everyone. Why we should be prayer warriors. He's still on that. The context here, and we we dare not miss the context because this should reinvigorate our prayer lives. This should challenge us to be prayer warriors. Because in the very next verse, he brings up prayer again. Look at verse 8. 
Therefore, based on what he's saying in verse 7, and what he said before verse 7, I want, what's the therefore, therefore? To emphasize what he's just written, I want the men in every place to pray what? To pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Part of my message on the last men's retreat we did was on lifting up holy hands when we pray. And Pastor Steve told me sometime after that, he goes, Joe, it's really neat. He goes, there's men that I've talked to after that men's retreat who have said that they've been lifting their hands in prayer more since that study. Well, now we're going to be in chapter 2, verse 8 next week. And lifting your hands as a warrior of God is very important. Jimmy, you know why it is, huh? When you look at the scripture, it's very important. It's really lost in the church today. In fact, if you lifted your hands in many churches, they think you're out of order in some way or you're being a spectacle. Whereas lifting your hands in prayer is actually very, very biblical. In fact, not to lift your hands in prayer, not saying you have to lift your hands all the time. The Bible mentions several different, you know, postures of prayer. So it's not as though, you know, every second of the day, obviously you're lifting your hands in prayer and we're supposed to pray without ceasing. So we're supposed to always have attitude of prayer, you know. Uh, so when you're driving down the road, you know, it's kind of hard to lift your hands, you know, although I've done that and drove my elbows a little bit, but I don't do that on Canyon Roads, you know, it's a little harder, right? So, but uh, it's very important. And when you see how important that is, so it breaks my heart when you read commentaries and, and churches and even denominations where, oh, well, that's basically just a custom. No, it's far more than a custom. It's a command from the Lord. And it's based on a, a biblical principle. And it's lifting hands is mentioned over and over and over again in Scripture. And we'll really look into that. But right now, we're not really focused on verse 8 other than the context. The context has been on prayer. Remember, look at verse 1 of chapter 2. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of who? All men, right? For kings and all who are in authority, right? So he's praying and then he starts giving reasons we ought to be praying for everyone, including verse 7, that Paul's an apostle, a, a, a herald, a preacher, right? An apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. That factors into why we ought to be praying for everybody. And it's going to make more and more sense as we go. And then verse 8, therefore I want men to, in, uh, in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So brothers and sisters, he picks it up again. Are you following the context here? I want you and myself and all of us, when we go back to 1 Timothy a year from now, five years from now, we'll be reading this and we'll say, yeah, I know what's going on in this book. I know what's going on in this chapter. I know what's going on in this chapter. I know what this verse is about because we've studied it. We know it. We understand it. Amen? Amen. You know, uh, I was fellowshipping with, and it's great, we have Anita and Janet with us uh, today, and Anita's all the way from Prescott, Arizona, so we love her and, and Jana very much, and Anita was our women's Bible study teacher for years, and, and uh, we miss her, and uh, we just had, we're having a great time, but I was talking to them, and we, we spent some time before our, our time, my wife and I with them, and fellowshipping, and, and Jana was saying, uh, she goes, I listen to you all the time, and the background, you're constantly going, I'm thinking, poor girl, you know, but uh, she goes, I'm constantly listening, and she goes, I know so many verses now. She goes, because there's certain verses you like to use a lot, and those are in my head, and, and we cover so much ground. And the thing is, is we want to be immersed in Scripture. We want to be immersed in truth. And the one reason I tie these Scriptures together, and that she was saying that she appreciates that we tie Scriptures together. 
and show how they make sense. Because the Bible is, and not just in books, right? But the Bible is one, amen? From Genesis to Revelation, it's one book. And God wants to understand his will, his mind, which is revealed in Scripture. So uh, I, I want to draw your attention to the context here so you appreciate the verse more and understand what it means and how, therefore, how it applies to our lives. There's several reasons that Paul gives as to arguments, reasons, incentives as to why we ought to be praying for everybody. Verse 1 of chapter 2 is that we're supposed to be praying for everybody. And I don't know if you're realizing it, but he's giving the reasons we ought to be praying for everybody. That's the context of much of this chapter. And the chapter before, he actually starts to give us some of those reasons. In fact, we know that because in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, First of all, then, <laughs> first of all, then, first of all, then, in light of what he's just been saying, I urge entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. So he's already been giving reasons we ought to be praying for everybody. And then he gives more reasons we ought to be praying for everybody. If you're not praying for everybody, behold, many of these reasons Paul gives, please behold them all. And let them convict you and let them encourage you to be a prayer warrior for the Lord and be a person of prayer. We're only here a short time and we need to stay in contact with our Heavenly Father and fulfill His will. And a lot of things don't happen because we don't pray. Jesus, the Bible says you have not because you ask not. Amen. And the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Amen. The effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And we need to be praying. There's be so much fruit in our lives. So much fruit in your family, in our fellowship, in the people that we know. Uh, if we pray more, you know. And maybe you're saying, but I'm praying. I'm seeking the Lord. And so forth. Praise God. That's good. Then you're in a good place. You're like, man, I, I try to pray. I need to pray more. That's good. You, need, you know you need to pray more. We need to do that. We, we never pray enough, you know. I don't think I've ever been in a place where somebody, if they ask me about my prayer life, I say, oh, it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. I always feel like I need to pray more. You ever feel that way? And even when I'm doing good, and I think by the grace of God throughout my Christian walk, I've had a pretty good prayer life. But I think, you know what? There's times where I'm like praying a lot more, it seems like. I've been able to, and I've been praising God because in the last years of my life, I think I've been more steady in prayer than the first years of my life. But at the same time, I always feel like I need to pray more, you know? I need to seek the Lord more, cry out to Him more. Now, it's interesting, and these reasons really helped incentivize me in my prayer life. And by the way, I'm just going to be honest with you. When I was going through 1 Timothy and I was getting ready to go through this, I didn't realize uh, how much I'd be emphasizing prayer at this juncture of the book. Because I'm like, wow. This is really all about importance of praying for everyone. Now, I, one commentary I have, uh, I think it's William Mounts, he mentions that there's three reasons Paul, or arguments Paul gives us that we ought to pray. And he's a really good scholar. He's, in fact, I mentioned recently, uh, he's a Reformed guy, and he's uh, one of the top Greek scholars and so forth. And then by the time I got re done reading his section, I was checking out his commentary. Then he had four reasons. I'm like, he started with three, and then he's out. I don't know if he lost track, and he said the fourth reason. I'm like, oh, he's got, in his mind, there's four. But I believe there's more than four. I believe there's actually ten reasons he gives us to pray here for everyone. Because as I go through the text, and I'm still living in chapter one with the context here, I'm like, no, he's giving more than three or four reasons. He's giving us, I see at least ten reasons. You could debate a couple of them, maybe whether they're reasons or not, but implicitly I believe they are. 
but uh, let's check it out, okay? Uh, I think one reason he gives us to pray, and that's the, why should we pray for everybody? When Paul says, first of all then, that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. Then, meaning what? Based on what he's just written, what's some things he's, he's written in the past in chapter one that would give us incentive, would incentivize us to pray. One thing is in 1 Timothy 1.15, a few verses earlier, where he says, what? That's a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came to the world to save who? Sinners. That's one reason we should be praying, because the very reason Jesus was incarnated, and that, that God became a man, was to what? Save sinners. Does anybody know any sinners that you could pray for? Anybody have any workmates that might qualify as Sinners? Anybody have any friends or neighbors that might qualify as sinners? Anybody have any family members that might qualify as sinners? The Bible says, Romans 3.23, all have what? Sin and come short of the glory of God. Amen? And the wages of sin is death. That's why they need prayer, man. The wages of their sin is death. And everyone's sinned. There's none that is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned. Amen? And we ought to be praying because he came to save sinners. Amen? Amen. That's, that's number one on my list. He came to pray sinners. Save, he, came, he came to save sinners. Therefore, I should be praying for everyone. Amen? Amen? Number two is Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. That's another reason. Number two, the second reason I should pray for everyone is guess what? God's interested in even saving the worst of sinners. Amen? Amen? And that was my point before is we might leave the worst of sinners off our prayer list, right? You must say, I mean, that's the tendency of some Christians. Do you pray for people that are your enemies? Jesus said pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you and insult you and, and, and mistreat you and you'll have reward in heaven. Do you pray for those who are the hardest to pray for because they're antagonistic toward you? Uh, they're mean-spirited. They don't care about what's right. They're antagonistic. They're self-centered. They live for themselves. They don't, they're not grateful for what you've done in their lives or, or any way you've tried to help them and they're hard to pray for. Well, they need prayer the most because those kinds of people are on a grease pole to hell. People that just live for themselves and are parasitical, hard to pray for at times. Those are the people that need the most prayers, man, because they're going to have the worst judgment too. So number one, Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Number two, he came in the world to save, the, save the, the, even the chief of sinners. And by the way, that draws me to chapter two, verse one and two, where he goes on to say, pray, he says a subset of those who are to pray for are who? Kings and those who are in authority. Really? Remember, we've talked about that. Who was ruling when Paul was writing First and Second Timothy? Nero, one of those wicked men who ever lived. And a lot of people would probably say, Paul, I don't, you're not the chief of sinners, you're not the foremost. Nero is. And you might not pray for him. You probably wouldn't pray for him. Many Christians probably didn't pray for him. And Paul's saying, pray for him. Why? Number one, he came to save sinners. Number two, I'm the worst sinner. And he saved me. And number three, Paul goes on to say, the reason he saved me, he states this, and I but we could read all the verses, but then I won't get to the, the, the other stuff I want to get to. But if you go on to read verses 15 and 16, Paul says he saved me that, that you know, others would know who could, would come to Jesus in the future, that they would also be accepted. Amen? So number three, we should be praying for everyone, including wicked people, because 
God saved Paul, came to save sinners, saved Paul. Number three, saved Paul for this purpose. So the wicked would come to Christ, amen? And they would know how the, the goodness of the gospel. So we pray for everyone so they would know how good Jesus is, amen? How he even would save them because he saved Paul. So that's number three. Number four, right after Paul mentions being the chief of sinners, he gets right with God and others can be saved too. You might write off false teachers. You know what? I have to admit, some of the people I struggle to pray with in the past, and I've told you I've been doing a lot better in that because Paul's really challenged me through the years, especially in the last few years, is leaders. Politicians are really hard to pray for because I see their, their, their subterfuge, their design. We look at what's going on in, in big government right now. It's very anti-Christ and so forth, but I realize they need my prayers. But guess who Paul mentions before he even mentions kings and those who are in authority? He mentions false teachers like Hymenaeus. And Alexander, in verses 18 through 20, who Paul handed over to Satan that they might what? Right? They be taught not to blaspheme. That they might learn not to blaspheme. God wants them to learn a lesson so they can come back. The purpose of church discipline is not to damn people. The purpose of church discipline in handing people over to Satan saying they, they're not welcome in this fellowship while you're in rebellion to God. And, and then they're not with the body of Christ at that point. And they're outside the body of Christ at that point. They're outside the church. Is guess what? At that point, they're in darkness and they're in Satan's power to one degree or another. They're afflicted. And the hope is, is that they learn, these Hymenaeus here in Philetus, not to blaspheme and come back to the Lord. So when he's saying pray for everything, well, who was he just talking about? Two false teachers. And right after that, he talks about these political leaders, rulers. This verse is sandwiched. Did you ever notice the context there? It's sandwiched between false teachers and world leaders. <laughs> Two hard groups, amen, Jim, to pray for? Yes. I think God's saying something. And my fourth point is, even before you get to verse one, we ought to be praying for false teachers. And I have a hard time praying for them even more so than I do politicians because a lot of politicians don't claim to know Jesus and, and bamboozle the sheep. But I pray against false teachers at times that they would not influence the flock. I pray for the flock here in the body of Christ that we seek to influence, that they'd be spared from false teaching. You probably see I pray a lot about that because it comes out in my teaching. But I also need to pray more, and I do pray for them, false teachers that they would repent and get right with Jesus because the Bible says of false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2 and in the book of Jude that the black darkness is reserved for them forever. They have a special judgment. That's why it says, let not none of you seek to be teachers, for you shall incur a stricter judgment, James chapter 3, verse 1. So we want to make sure our hearts are right with God and that we share the truth. We don't want to back away from God's call in our life. We want to make sure we're right with him, though. Amen? It's the fifth reason that uh, he gives us incentive to pray is in chapter 2, verse 2, because he says that we should be praying for them, we should be praying for everyone, including those who are in authority, so we can live a quiet and godly life. That's the reason we should be praying, praying for everyone too. Guess what? You having a quiet and godly life and not having overriding persecution at times sometimes is the difference from whether you've been praying or not. And we know God uses persecution. The gospel still spreads under persecution. And in many ways, it's the seed of the church. But sometimes persecution keeps the gospel from going anywhere like it does in certain Muslim countries. So God wants us to have uh, us to pray that we can have a quiet and peaceful life so we can share the gospel, amen? 
And so people could behold your witness, my witness, our witness, and come to Christ. Are you with me? That's a fifth reason that uh, he incentivizes us to pray. A sixth reason he incentivizes us to pray is he says, this is, in verse three, he says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Because it's good. God wants you to do it. And it's acceptable. Man, you're in the will of God when you're praying for people to be saved, to know Jesus. And then you living a quiet and peaceful life is beautiful in God's sight. It's a good thing. So that's a sixth reason we ought to be praying. And a seventh reason we ought to be praying for everyone, praying for everyone, not just yourself. Lord, I lay myself down to sleep and should I wake, you know, or should you come before I wake or, you know, not just prayers for ourselves. It's so easy to pray for ourselves when we're going through things, but we should be praying, try to be disciplined to pray for the lost. I really encourage you to do that. Be disciplined to pray for other people. Pray for the, your brothers and sisters. The Bible says pray for all the saints. In Ephesians chapter 6, pray for all the saints. And it says it more than once. You're supposed to be praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ and make that part of your prayer life. Father, strengthen Blessed Hope Chapel. You know how many times? Probably not enough. But I've said, Lord, bless Blessed Hope Chapel. Bless my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's one of my prayers. You should be praying. That should be part of your the fellowship, yourself, your fellowship, your, your, you know, your brothers and sisters in Christ, your family members, the children in the church, the marriages in the church. These are all things we ought to be praying for. Amen? Very, very important. So the sixth reason is it's good acceptable. The seventh reason is, well, verse four. Seventh reason we ought to be praying for everyone, including those who are in authority and people like Nero, is because God desires in verse four, what does it say? That all would be saved, amen, and come to the knowledge of the truth. We should be praying that all would be, we should be praying for everyone because God desires that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, amen? It's another reason. That's God's heart. He wants everyone to be saved. Talk to me about it. Ask me. It's an interesting thing that he gives us a privilege to be, you know, partners with him in his will. That's number seven. Number eight, we should be praying for everyone because verse five goes on to say now that God has, that there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The next reason we ought to be praying Okay, the next reason we ought to be praying is because, verse 5, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. What's the purpose of that verse? Because God became a man and therefore he's the perfect mediator as the God-man between humanity because he's a man and he represents humanity as the second Adam, represents the whole human race, dies for the human race. And he also represents God to man. He represents man to God and God to man. It's a blow mind. And what's really interesting about verse five is it's the great, it's a, Paul takes the great Shema of Israel. The Shema of Israel was six words long. In English, it's hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, by the way. And that's even more important that I get that right. Hear, O Israel, Talking to Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You say, that's not six words. Well, in Hebrew, it's six words. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Akkad. Okay? And I'm not really good with the Hebrew. <laughs> with my throat. I can't get the throat thing down, you know. 
I got enough German in me where you think I'd get that down, but things a little different with the Hebrew. Uh, but Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, you know, uh, and then Adonai Akkad, you know, Lord your God is one. Uh, now this is this is a play on the Shema. Paul takes the Shema, which is directed to Israel. Hero Israel, Lord your God. Lord is what? Akkad one. Israel, your God. Here he says, not just Israel. There's one mediator between God and man. Man now, humanity, right? The man Christ Jesus. Moses was the mediator for Israel, amen? Jesus is the mediator for all of humanity. Anybody can be saved through him, amen? So that's another reason he gives us, a, uh, incentivizes to pray for everyone, amen? Because Christ, he doesn't only will that all be saved, but he's the one mediator for everyone who can save everyone and represent them to God if they but come to him. And he expands, he doesn't just say Israel here, he expands it to be for all people, which I think is just absolutely uh, beautiful. And it's interesting because uh, many scholars believe, we don't know though, that verses five and six was a creed in the early church. Timothy is one of the early letters uh, written in the, in the church period. And, uh, you know, that, that there's one, uh, that verse five, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And then it speaks of how Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. They believe that's a creed that Paul's using. We don't know that. Now, it certainly became a part of a lot of creeds. And the first time we have it in history is right here. So maybe God intended it to be a creed. I think it's the safest answer because it became a creed. And God does want us to focus on these types of verses. Amen. So we have nine, eight reasons right there. And then the ninth reason is verse six, which I just alluded to. It says of Christ that he gave himself as what? A ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. Another reason we should be praying for everybody. The ninth reason is because Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for everybody. Amen. Praise God. Are these very important reasons? Do these nine reasons we've looked at so far encourage you to want to pray for everybody? Amen. They ought to. Our minds are supposed to be renewed, right, by the Holy Spirit and by the teaching of Scripture. So allow these Scriptures to sink into your heart and say, wow, I should be praying for everyone because God wants all to be saved because Christ gave himself a ransom for all because Jesus is a mediator for, for all humanity, right, between God and man, right? <laughs> you know, and all these other reasons we just talked about. Because he came to save sinners, even the worst of sinners. That's why I should be praying for everybody, including those who are in authority, including false teachers, you know? Number 10. And I was surprised because I like it when I have 10 points, but I didn't know this was going to be 10. I'm like, wow, there's actually 10 reasons I see here that we ought to be praying, you know? Some explicit and some imp implicit. And the 10th one is verse 7. Because Paul says, for this I was appointed a preacher and a, an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, we ought to be praying for everyone because God's called Paul and all of us to one degree or another to evangelize the Gentile world. Amen? Amen. That's why we ought to be praying for everybody. He calls us all to pray. And by the way, we're all called to be missionaries. Each and every one of you as a Christian is called to be a missionary. How do you know I'm called to world missions, Joe? I didn't say you're called to another country. 
I just know that we're all missionaries. I've told you again and again in 2 Corinthians, the Bible says God has given us the church, the ministry of what? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. You are a minister of the gospel, male or female, you are a minister. You don't even have to go to school to become a minister. In fact, right when you become a Christian, you're a minister. But right when I became a Christian, I was so, well, I'm not say you were a great minister. You're just a new minister. You need to grow in your vocation. But we're all called in 2 Corinthians to be ministers of reconciliation. We are to bring people to Christ. Amen? The Bible says, he that wins souls is wise. You are to be a witness. Jesus said to his disciples, not just the apostles, to his disciples, his followers in general, that you are the light of the world. Amen? Who lights a lamp and then hides it under a bushel? You are the salt of the earth. Amen? Amen. And that's what we are as Christians. Jude, writing to Christians in general, is telling them to earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all delivered unto the saints. Tells them, Christians in general, not apostles, not elders, not deacons, Christians in general, snatch people out of the fire. You are commanded. I'm commanded. We're called to snatch people out of the fire. Amen? Amen. That's our calling as believers. And by the way, if you just pray and say, God, if you're praying for lost people like we're called to here, you're going to have a heart for lost people. And that's what I encourage people to do. They're like, Joe, I just, I don't have a heart for the lost, really. You know, I just get aggravated with them. Well, get, pray more for them, man. And pray that God would give you a heart for the lost. And no one said that to me recently, but one gal told me that like 25 years ago. And that was just where she was at, you know. She was being honest. She says, Joe, it's so hard for me. I get so anti, you know, I just, the lost, I just, um, and I just reminded her, you once were lost, you know. You once were there. You got to remember, you know. And another gal say to me, sometimes I wish we could just put a no vacancy sign in our church because I just love the way our church is. I just love how everybody loves each other and we're close and everything. And I'm like, what? You know, what if we did that before you started coming? You wouldn't be here, you know. And we need to reach the lost, amen? Jesus said, go to the highways and byways, amen, that my house may be full. He wants you to reach people, amen? It says, those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Amen? And it's just, we're, we're called to be witnesses to the lost. And now when I mentioned, Paul mentions being an apostle to the Gentiles, again, he didn't just share with Gentiles, he shared with Jews too, but that was his main mission. Now, this is very important because you have to understand how radical this is in light of what was going on in the first century. It was really hard for Jews to break away from the prejudicial thoughts that salvation was only of the Jews. Certainly salvation was of the Jews. Jesus said that, right? But he said he had other sheep, amen? And he commanded his disciples to go into all the world, making disciples of all nations. But for the Jewish mindset, it was so hard because they would say things like in their prayers, thank you, God, that I'm not a woman, a dog, or a Gentile. You know, and they scorned the Gentiles. And many Jews felt they were better than the Gentiles, not recognizing that any salvation that they could experience was purely of God's grace. Amen? Amen. And Paul got it. Wow. Remember, they had a really hard time. Remember, Peter didn't go to the Gentiles, and he, Jesus commanded Peter and the others not to just go to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. 
You remember when God dropped that sheet in front of him? He wasn't going to the Gentiles and he said, kill Peter and eat. Three times. Crawdads and shrimp and lobster and pork chops and all this food that Pete wanted. And I don't know what was all there, but it probably a pretty good buffet of food because Peter said, I can't eat. I haven't eaten anything clean since I was a kid. I'm totally kosher. Jesus drops his kill and eat, right? Second time, a third time, he tells Peter on the third time, you know, to kill and eat and don't call unclean what I've called clean. Amen? And the Lord was using that as an illustration that if he can clean food, that's considered unclean and make it clean. And he can because in Mark chapter 7, it says when some of the Jewish leaders were condemning Jesus because his disciples were eating with unclean hands. Jesus says, it's not what goes into the body that defiles the man, that which comes out of the heart, right? And, and Mark says to us by the Holy Spirit, by saying this, Jesus was declaring all foods clean. There's other scriptures that I can mention as well, but that one right there is enough, right? Is that you're not under these dietary laws where you can't eat lobster and shrimp and crawdad and bacon and um, not, it's not necessarily really good for you, some of that fish, right? Because of, you know, uh, nitrates and stuff in the bacon if you eat too much of it. But there's a lot of uh, yummy food you're allowed to eat now. But the good news is that's also a wonderful picture. Next time you're eating bacon or a piece of shrimp, think about everything's a picture to me, man. And when you just, the more you say the Bible, it's like you just, God's always reminding you, wow, you know, Jesus died for the non-believers. He died for everybody, including the Gentiles. He can make anyone clean, amen? amen. And I think it's important that we understand that that was always God's plan. The Jews got this, un, this twisted mindset that salvation was just for them. Everybody else would pretty much go to hell, some of them thought. And only the Jews would be saved. And then very scarcely would a Jew be saved. In a lot of their mindsets, some of them felt if, if only two people be saved, it'll be a scribe and a Pharisee. But Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa! Nobody, if, and they said, if, any, if only two people make it, they'll make it. Jesus says, not nah, your righteousness got to exceed their righteousness. How can that happen? None of us are saved on our own righteousness. Amen? Amen. We're only saved through the righteousness of Christ. Amen? Our faith is in the gospel and what he did for us. We're saved by grace through faith in him and what he did on the cross, his faithfulness. Now, it's interesting. The scripture, though, from the very beginning, never said salvation was only for the Jews. That was a misunderstanding, and that was something that just became ingrained in the culture, and they forgot and, or neglected or just ignored that God had a plan for the entire world, and his plan was for all the nations, that people would be saved out of all the nations, and we know that from the very get-go, right? All the way back, you guys, in Genesis chapter 12, the first book of the Bible, when God calls Abraham very early in Genesis chapter 12, what does God say to him? They say, Abraham, I want you to go to the land of Canaan, and guess what? I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless just your posterity, just the Jewish people, and you guys are going to have a heavenly life, and I'm going to damn everybody else. Was that his plan? No, we read from the beginning in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. And he did. That prophecy was fulfilled in Israel. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And he did. Everybody knows the name of Abraham. And you will be a blessing. And he was. In fact, the blessings of Abraham have come to you and me. Amen. All this is, these are all prophecies fulfilled. But then let's look, listen to verse three. I will bless those who bless you. 
and he has. And whoever curses you, I will curse. You look at what happened to Spain when they persecuted the Jews afterwards. You look at what happened to Nazi Germany. You know, it was destroyed after the, after the Holocaust for some time. I will bless you, those who bless you, and I, whoever curses you, I will curse. And now listen to this. And all peoples or all nations or all tribes, planning your translation, of the earth will be blessed through you. God's plan for the rich. When you're talking to somebody and they're like, well, yeah, God's a tribal God. He only just wanted the Jews. Say, really? Where do you hear that? That's what your atheists say sometimes. Oh, you know, Yahweh's a tribal God of the Jews. Really? No, that was never God's plan. And by saying that, a lot of atheists say that a lot. I see that online when you see debates and stuff. Oh, God's just a tribe. They try to minimize who God is. No, God, when he called Abraham, that was just the beginning. And it was through Abraham, right, and his seed that all the nations of the earth and his seed is Jesus Messiah, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's been his plan from the beginning, guys, to get not just the Jews but the Gentiles. Hence Paul being an apostle to the Gentiles. Are you with me? In fact, in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, it says this. God says this. Uh, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up tribes of Jacob and to restore and preserve the ones of Israel. I will also make you. He goes, I have more plan for you than that. This is what he says to Israel. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles or to the nations or to the Goyim so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That's in Isaiah 49, 6, guys. The Jews were called to be a light to who? The Gentile nations. Yet the Jews would wipe their feet when they'd leave a Gentile area and go to Israel. They wanted nothing to do with them. They didn't want to talk to the Gentiles you were scorned if you were talking to a Gentile often. You couldn't eat and, with them and so forth. A lot of, there were a lot of extra biblical Jewish laws that prevented them from being a light to the Gentiles in many ways. Paul understood this scripture. He's, after all, a Gentile. I'm sorry, he's called as a Jew to be a light to the Gentiles. And Paul quotes that scripture from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. In Acts chapter 13, verse uh, set 47, right after he ministered to the Jews, many of which rejected the gospel at that point, then he says this. Uh, he quotes the scripture in chapter 13, verse 47 of Acts. I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And Paul says that in the context that we must turn now to the Gentiles. So Paul knew the scripture and he was fulfilling it in his calling. Now, God had revealed long ago that in the Old Testament that he had planned on saving the Gentiles. He sketched it out. It wasn't super clear what his plan was, but that the Messiah was coming and that the Messiah would be for all nations and that God would also save Gentiles. And the Jews didn't know how to fit this into their eschatological puzzle really. They just knew there's, those scriptures hung there and it didn't really fit in the way they were living their lives, so they just kind of ignored it. But God had a plan. And go, go now to the book of Ephesians. There's some really cool scriptures I want to show you that I think will excite you. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that he, the Lord, 
made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, in Christ. Over and over again, you have in him, in Christ, in the beloved, in Ephesians. It's like this long run-on sentence of praise, of just ecstatic, uh, you know, just soteriology, Christ-centered salvation plan influenced by the Holy Spirit as Paul just, just talks about this plan where he's made known the mystery of his will. And then in verses, you know, 11 through 13, he gets into more detail of that plan. And we read this. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So God takes everything, you guys, the good, the bad, right? The, the choices that are rejecting the Lord, the choices of people who accept him and do his will. He takes it all together and works it all together according to the counsel of his will. That's because of his infinite knowledge and wisdom. Verse 12, to the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Amen? In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So God's plan was to predestine those who would accept the gospel of Jesus Christ to glory and according to his plan. So he has this plan. But this plan isn't just encompassing Israel. In fact, you know what people misunderstand about predestination over and over again when they go to Ephesians and and Romans and this study is not going to go into it. I'm not going to just get into predestination for 20 minutes. I love that topic, but I'd lose track of what I really want to get into here and wouldn't be able to finish what I set out to finish today. But I will say this. When people go to Ephesians 1 and the rest of the book, or they go to Romans, the two books in the New Testament that deal with predestination the most and, and uh, also election, when they go there, they think that God for some reason just brings it up to as though God's just saying that he arbitrarily chooses some and damns others and he wants us to know that you don't have a choice in your salvation and that's not it at all. You definitely have a choice in your salvation. Luke 7.30 speaks of the scribes and lawyers how they set aside God's purpose for themselves. Refused to be baptized by John, Luke 7.30. They set aside God's purpose for themselves, refused to be baptized by John. God has a purpose for people that they can reject. He works that according to the counsel of his will. People reject him, okay. You don't want to receive salvation? Well, I'm still going to be glorified through your rejection of me. But guess what? When you look at Romans and when you look at Ephesians, you look at the context, the reason God brings up predestination, the reason he brings up election is to point out the fact that salvation does just not encompass the Jews. That it was never just about the Jews. That God always had a plan to also save Gentiles. And that his plan didn't just start with Abraham, but that it stretches back before the creation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4, amen? And that it was always going to be in accordance with, his predestining purpose was always going to be in accordance with the gospel, Ephesians chapter 1, 11 through 13, that would be based on his gospel plan, that whoever would believe would be saved, and those who were believed were sealed, amen? So his predestiny purposes have to do with the gospel and have to do with Jews and Gentiles. And the reason he brings up predestination and election in Ephesians and in Romans is to let us know that his plan is way beyond just Israel. Israel is a key component of that plan, though. Amen. They're the special nation, the descendants of Abraham that he called, and he's not done with them. 
He wants to make that clear as well. So trip out now with me for a little bit when we look at his plan and how it unfolds, how it always included the Gentiles and that this is based on the Old Testament teaching that many Jews missed, that God had a bigger plan. And Paul gets into that. Look at chapter two of Ephesians now, verse 13. And Paul talks about how God had planned to incorporate Gentiles into his salvation plan. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Those who were far off, those Gentiles who had nothing to do with God, nothing to do with Yahweh, didn't read the Old Testament prophets. They were so far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, meaning the Jews and the Gentiles, he himself is our peace who made both groups into what? One. One and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Jews and Gentiles were divided. How did he do this? Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments containing ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. God himself, Christ, God became a man. And now we become one in him as part of the body of Christ, Jews and Gentiles. Verse 16. And might reconcile, bring them back together, reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Wow. It gets more powerful. Look at chapter 3. Verse 6. And you'll know why I titled this message called, the, the title this message is The Church of the Mystery. We are the Church of the Mystery. I did a teaching, I don't know how many years ago, but sometime back, and uh, teaching these scriptures. And, and when I was giving Big Jim, uh, not Stanford, Jim Murphy, the title for the message, his tears welled up in his eyes. And he goes, and he started to weep. You know, we prayed. He goes, I'm so excited for the congregation to hear this message because I remember when you shared this years ago or whenever I shared it, he goes, it meant so much to me and I learned so much and I was so blessed to learn that. And he goes, I'm so blessed to know they're going to be hearing this. And I, I, and, and I thought, and I, I, Jimmy, I'm very kindred with in a lot of ways. And I thought, you know what? <laughs> Praise God because that blessed my heart. And he's, he's weeping right now because he loves truth. He loves God. He loves his plan. He loves God's grace. We praise God that we're incorporated as Gentiles into this amazing plan. And God always had us to, in his eye to be part of this plan. It's, it's mind-blowing. And it should move each of us. And it should give us, we should be so thankful that Paul was appointed as a, as a minister to the Gentiles. So now look at chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. There it is again. Paul, for the Gentiles, verse 2, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. It's all about God's grace. You could never be saved through the law. The Jews couldn't be saved through the law of Moses. That was a tutor to lead them to the knowledge that they could not be saved by doing good because they were lawbreakers. They needed to be saved by God's grace. And Paul calls the stewardship that he has as a stewardship of grace because God wants to incorporate the Gentiles too. Verse 3, that by revelation... Notice that word revelation, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. What mystery, Paul, was made known to you by way of revelation? 
You see, in the Bible, a mystery is something at one time, at first, only known in the mind of God. Understand? And it's only known in the mind of God. And it's unknowable by any of us and any human being through just human reasoning. And the only way it's made known is by God through his spirit, making it known through revelation, by revealing it to us through the apostles and through the prophets. That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. Verse four, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight. Paul was giving special insight into the revelation of the mystery of the church. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Because the church is wrapped up in Christ, as the body of Christ. Which in other generations, now this is interesting, verse 5. In other generations was what? Not made known to the sons of men. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. So there's something really heavy going on here. It wasn't made known in past generations to the sons of men. Now, it doesn't say it wasn't made known, period, at all. There was nothing about it said. And you'll see why I say that in a minute. He says it wasn't made known to the sons of men in past generations, right? As it has now, as it has been uh, revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. You're going to see in a little bit that in the Old Testament, there was revelation about it, but there was not understanding. Revelation that was given about the future that the prophets really didn't really understand. So it wasn't really made known to them as it is now through the current apostles and prophets of the church. Okay? And that is that the gospel of salvation would be spread beyond the Jewish people and not limited to the Jewish people, but would encompass all nations, all peoples of the world, uh, would be gathered, people from every nation, not every person, but people from every nation into the kingdom of God through Christ. Look at verse six. What is the mystery, guys? What is the mystery? Verse six states it. To be specific, Paul states, he's being specific here, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of what? The body. Amen. Can you say amen? amen. That we can be, we're incorporated as part of the body. And they, the Jews, keep in mind, they didn't even understand that they would be part of the body of Messiah. You understand what I'm saying? They, Messiah was coming, but they didn't understand what that would entail spiritually. To be specific, he tells us what the mystery is. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Christ Jesus, that's Messiah, Jesus, the Mashiach. Not just for the Jews, but the Gentile believers are fellow partakers with the Jews through the gospel, through the good news. Amen. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says of this mystery that it was what? In verse 9. For ages past was what? Anybody Ephesians 3, 9? For ages past it was what? Kept hidden. Amen. Kept hidden. Kept secret. Verses 10 and 11. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church 
to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now the demons, the fallen angels and the good angels are tripping out. Whoa, this is what God is doing. They're not fully understanding what's going on in the cross and the gospel and why God's become a man. Now they're tripping out. So the manifold wisdom that God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Verse 11, this was in accordance with what? The eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was always part of God's eternal purpose. Do you understand now why I said many people misunderstand predestination and election? Many people just think God is just saying that he wants some and he doesn't want others and he's letting us know if you're a Christian, you were just a special elect person. And No, that's not what that's about. The, per, the point that Paul's making in, with election and predestination in Ephesians and in Romans is that God's choice according to his eternal purposes always was to incorporate people from every nation of the world to be part of the bride of Christ, amen, and part of the people of Christ. It's a, so predestination isn't this exclusivist, mean-spirited, reprobating God. Predestination is this glorious, beautiful truth that whoever believes, amen, would be saved and they were part of God's predestining choice from ages past, amen? Hallelujah. Whosoever will. It's a glorious word. Predestination and election aren't words that you should run away from or, or you know, conjure up in your mind these ideas of a despot that gets off on just being glorified through tormenting people forever. You know, no. It's according to his glorious plan that whosoever believes would not perish. It all goes in concert together. Colossians 1.26, you can go there you want you don't have to keep your finger in Ephesians if you got a Bible and you're not using an app but in Colossians chapter 1 uh, verse 26 Paul mentions this as well this is like throughout the New Testament guys I think it's really really super cool in Colossians 1 26 we read something quite interesting it says that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints wow Verse 27, to whom he willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This mystery is not just about Gentiles and Jews being united together and becoming one and the gospel being for everybody, but it also has to do with our union with Jesus, amen? That we're one in Christ with Jews and Gentiles and we're all fellow believers as brothers and sisters in Christ and part of his body forever and that we belong to Christ. He is the head and that we're part of a spiritual body, Christ in us, the hope of glory. This stuff is just, too, too beautiful. And in fact, in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verses 25 through 27, that's where Paul says, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, right? They may present the church to her in, you know, without spot or wrinkle in all her glory. And that, guess what? The husbands and wives and wives respecting the husbands and so forth, that's a picture of this union between Christ and his people. The two become one flesh. Guess what? We as a church are one with Christ and part of his body forever. And marriage is a picture of that. God ordained marriage as a picture of his plan of the, the mystery from ages past. In fact, Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 5, 30 through 32, because we are members of his body. We are members of Christ's body spiritually. For this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, that the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, this mysterion, is mega in Greek, mega. 
This mysterion is mega or this mysterion is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The church is called the church of the mystery. And it entails so much beauty. It's just a blow mind. Now go to the book of Romans. Go to the book of Romans. You'll see the same thing going on here. And you'll say, wow, where did all these verses come from on this subject? You know, they're not just one here and one there. They're all over the place in the New Testament. Paul describes himself as a bondservant of Christ Jesus. And he's called as an apostle. Set apart for the gospel of God. Amen? Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Notice God had promised beforehand, right? That this would take place, the gospel of God, through the Holy Scriptures. Through the prophets. So it's in the Old Testament, but it's revealed in the New Testament. So somehow it's in the Old Testament, but it's hidden, but it's fully revealed in the New Testament. What's going on here? Is there a contradiction? Absolutely not. Hold on, you'll see, you'll understand this. In fact, he talks about uh, how he was promised beforehand uh, through, uh, which uh, he, he, God promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. Concerning verse three, his son, who was born of a descendant of David, or uh, of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, this is all prophetic, who, because he's going to be the seed of Abraham, through which all the nations will be blessed. Amen. Verse four who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now look at verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the what? Obedience of faith among who? All the Gentiles for his namesake. What does he want to bring about? The obedience of faith. Paul wants the gospel, wants to use Paul and others for the gospel spread throughout the nations so people will come to faith in Christ and they'll obey him through faith. Amen. And he'll have an obedient people that'll be obedient to the faith. Now it's interesting, without going too in depth before I get to a couple other scriptures I want you to actually read, it's important for you to understand that the Jews were wondering, wait a minute, where are God's chosen people? What happened? Messiah came, you're saying, Paul? And all the other Jewish believers and Gentile believers, and now he's moved on to the Gentiles? What about us? We're part of God's, we're the children of Abraham. And Paul's letting them know that God had always promised to bring the Gentiles into his gospel plan, just like in Ephesians. He hasn't forgotten the Jews, he hasn't forgotten Israel. Israel's still part of his plan, part of his grand plan at that. But he's letting them know in chapters 9 through 11 that God has purposes to glorify himself and that all those who love God and are called according to his purpose, right? They works all things together for the good for them. And him who he foreknew, who are they? Those that love God? He knows he's going to love them. He's going to respond to the gospel. He's going to predestine to be conformed to the image of his son. Amen? And bring him to glory. So Paul goes through this and he points out to the Jews that he always had a plan when you read chapter 9 through 11 of Romans. And it's interesting because he states, he states in Romans 11 that God's plan incorporates both Gentiles and Jews and that Israel, as Paul says in verse chapter 11, uh, has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, Romans 11, 25 through 27. So Israel's presently hardened against the Messiah and God is using that to bring the Gentiles in. And he's bringing the Gentiles in, by the way, earlier in chapter 11, to cause the Jews to become jealous that he might win more of them. 
Amen? Amen. So Paul goes on to explain that after the last Gentile is saved and turns, I will turn ungodliness from Jacob and that all Israel, he says, will be saved. Verse 25 through 27. So God has not passed by the Gentiles. He's got a plan for him. And he's not thoroughly cut off Israel either. And even the Jews that were cut off as branches can be grafted back in if they don't continue in their unbelief. And after that, he says, all Israel will be saved. So this is all according to his predestined purposes. Now, we looked at the beginning of Romans, chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, and we looked at verse 5 where it talks about he's been called as an apostle to the Gentiles, and he's supposed to bring the obedience of the faith to the nations. Look what you see at the end of Romans. It's like a bookend to really help you understand Paul's main purpose, which he starts, he mentions in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. Go to Romans chapter 16, the last chapter, the last few verses. Go to verse 25. He says, now to him, verse 25, now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel. Sometimes you say, why is he saying by my gospel? Would you ever read the gospel according to Matthew? In Matthew it says, or the gospel according to Mark. In Mark, this is the gospel according to Paul. Romans, right? He's just giving you his understanding of the gospel that God's given him, uh, which is the same gospel, but there's different nuances and emphases. He says, now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the what? Are you with me in 1625? The revelation of the what? Of the mystery hidden for long past age, uh, uh, ages past. Catch that? There it is, the mystery that was hidden in long ages past. It was kept secret in the Old Testament days, that is. And Well, when was it made known, Paul? When was it made known? Look at verse 26. But now, referring to the new covenant era, the coming of Christ, Messiah, Mashiach, amen, his incarnation, his perfect life, his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension. But now, revealed and made known, now check this out. It's revealed, but it's also made known through the what? Prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might what? Believe in what? Obey him. There we are, guys. No easy believism, by the way, there either. God wants obedience. Why do you call me Lord, Jesus says, and do not what I say? We preach faith, trust, and obey, amen? Trust brings salvation, but if you're trusting him in, in, in your heart, you're going to obey, amen? Because works are the evidence of your faith. Now, it's interesting. Did you catch that? But now, he's revealed and made known through the, how does he make it known? Through the prophetic writings, by the command of the eternal God, so that all the nations, I'm sorry, th- so that all nations might believe and obey him. Now, what does he mean? It's revealed through the prophetic writings. That's not going to be referring to the New Testament apostles and prophets, New Testament is just now being written. He's talking about the Old Testament writings. But then wait, is there a contradiction here? I'm bringing that back up again. We know God doesn't contradict himself. So if there's a, if something we don't understand, it's because we don't understand it. We see through a glass darkly. But wait a minute. It was hidden in ages past. It was hidden in the Old Testament days. Yet here it's made known through the Old Testament prophets. Any contradiction? Absolutely not. Why? Because Paul was able to go to the Bereans and preach Jesus. Amen? 
And the Bereans would check out what Paul said, and it says the Bereans were considered more noble than those of Thessalonica, Acts chapter 70, verse 11, because they checked out what Paul, they searched the scriptures daily to check out what Paul was saying to see if what he was saying was true. Amen? How could they understand this gospel, this, this Messiah, and his death and resurrection for them, and so forth, because Paul could prove it from the Old Testament scriptures. But wait a minute. It's, it's incorporating, you're saying the Gentiles too, and, and, and that's revealed in the Old Testament, but it was kept secret in the Old Testament. Is there a contradiction? No. Why? Because look at what Peter says about the Old Testament prophets in regard to what they said about Jesus. This is the answer. Okay? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Peter says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to be made care Check it out. They prophesied of the grace that, that, would, uh, that would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries. These prophets who received, the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, that the prophets of old were moved along by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance or spoke through them, wrote through them, really. And it says here that of this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Listen to this, verse 11. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They were trying to understand it. They were searching, what does this mean? Asking questions. But it wasn't until it was revealed when Christ came and died for our sins. Keep in mind, even Jesus' apostles, amen, his disciples didn't fully understand what was going on. Jesus said he's going to the cross. Peter said, may it never be. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. They didn't understand. They understood the Messiah was coming, but how, did they ex how were they ex expecting the Messiah to come? Based on the Old Testament prophets. As conquering king, not a suffering servant, Right? They were expecting him to come as a conquering king to kick booty, man, whoop the Romans' rear ends, man, and then let us reign, Jesus. Oh, you're not going to do that? Well, we don't want you then. Crucify him. They were saying, you know, right, Hosanna's right before that. Days later, thou was saying, crucify him, crucify him, because they don't want someone to die for their sins. They don't want to think about their sins. They want to think we're great. And guess what? Even the apostles were expecting him to be a conquering king at first ignoring Isaiah 52 and 53 about the suffering servants and how the Son of Man would first suffer before he would be glorified. Are you with me? Do you understand? So it's important that we grasp this. And they also did not, they certainly did not grasp. They knew they were supposed to be light to the Gentiles. They knew many of them understood that somehow God's going to save Gentiles. But they didn't understand the equality that would come between Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ. They didn't understand the unity. They didn't understand the spiritual union as becoming part of the body of Christ. And yet in verse 26, at the end we read, by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. These are the marching orders for the church. Guys, for you and me, we're the body of Christ. We're supposed to go into the nations and preach the gospel and you're right, you're, you're in a nation right now. You can preach it all around that people would believe and obey him. Jesus said, go therefore, and where'd that command come from? Paul says it's a command. Yeah, command by Jesus more than once. Matthew 28, 19, 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? And he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to deserve all the things that have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 7, Jesus said to his disciples to go, right? To the nations, right? He says, what did he say? Preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins, amen? And, he sa- and then he says uh, that in his name are to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. To all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Then in Acts 1.8, he talks about the power of the Holy Spirit that will use the church, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Wow. The Holy Spirit wants to use you. God's using people. He wants to use you. But I'm, I'm a fallen, sinful person. That's everyone, man. But we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and he wants to use us all. He wants to empower you by his Holy Spirit to reach the lost. He wants to use us as his hands and his feet. Amen? Now, it's interesting. His ways, ultimately, you know, are beyond finding out. But he's given us enough of his will, that more than enough of his will, right? We're always discovering more of it as we study. But while we can't understand every little step that he makes and every big step that he makes, we have enough to trust him. Amen? Because he revealed to us who he is. He's revealed his plan, his character. Amen. And he's brought us into becoming among the beloved. And verse 27 says, says to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Man, he is such a wise God that he should have this plan. And this plan is called the mystery. To make all of us one in Christ. The church of the mystery. And look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, and 50 through 52. Now I say to you, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all, Jews and Gentiles, all part of the body of Christ, be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. At what trumpet? At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Brothers and sisters, all Jews and Gentiles, all believers, when Christ comes back, will be caught up to meet in the air and will be changed at the last trumpet. All of us. And that's part of the mystery. Because now, literally, that mystery is being resolved radically as we become, we get new bodies that are like his and we become one with him. When? At what trumpet? Let's quickly go to the last trumpet in the book of Revelation, and we see that happen. Go to chapter 10, verse 6, where it mentions what's going to happen when the last trumpet blows, and it's quite fascinating, verses 6 and 7. Verse 5, 6, and 7. Verse 5, then an angel, or then the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. Delay no longer, yeah, because they've been crying out earlier, how long, O God, do you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You know, and he says, hey, there's going to be delay no longer. He's going to bring the end. When? Verse 7 tells us when. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, that's the seventh trumpet, Remember Paul said the mystery, the mystery that would take place, that we'll all be one in Christ, changed with him forever? Remember that? Amen. At the last trumpet, he said. Now we read at the last trumpet, what's going to happen? But the day is the voice of the seventh angel. 
talking about the seventh trumpet. When he is about to sound, then what? Then what, guys? The mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. That's when this mystery we're talking about will be finished at the last trumpet. When's the the last trumpet? Go to Revelation 11, verse 15. You'll see the seventh trumpet, the last trumpet, which corresponds with Matthew chapter 24, where it says immediately after the tribulation, not pre-trib, not before the tribulation, not in the middle of the tribulation, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, Jesus said. The sun will not give its its light, the the moon will be darkened, and the stars will fall from heaven. It'll be the great sound of a trumpet, right? And he says, that trumpet, what will happen? The elect, he'll catch up from the four winds of heaven at that last trumpet. Not an earlier trumpet, that's at the end of the tribulation. Well, right here, this is a picture of the end of the tribulation. Verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded. What was going to happen when the seventh angel sounded? The mystery of God would be finished. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Now we're caught up, we're transformed. We're all one, Jews and Gentiles, and we're reigning with Christ for a thousand years. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord, the, the Almighty, who are and who were. Notice it's not who are and who were and who is to come because he's just come. So it's just who are and who were. That's the oldest manuscripts. I've done manuscript study on the best manuscripts and the, your modern translations have the best manuscripts here. The King James uses a very late manuscript uh, when it has to come. It's not in the Greek in the oldest manuscripts. It's who are and who were. I can understand why they put to come. The scribe says adds in to come because it's missing to come. No, it's not. You missed the context, Mr. Scribe. Don't add to the scripture. Who are and who were. Why? Because he's already come now. Because it says, and the nations were enraged and your wrath came, verse 18. And the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants. The bondservants to reward them? Yeah, Jesus says in Revelation 22, behold, says, I come quickly and my reward is with me. He rewards us when? At his coming, Revelation 22. Amen, it all fits together like a hand in a glove. And the nations were enraged and your, your wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great and destroy those who destroy the earth. That's Armageddon. Brothers and sisters, this is a glorious truth, man. We're part of the church of the mystery, made up of Jews and Gentiles. Paul's an apostle to the Gentiles. We ought to be praying for everyone because God has this grand plan that's gonna be all wrapped up at Christ's second coming. And while he, he still tarries, we have time to reach people, amen? Why hasn't he come yet? The Bible says very clearly why, because God knows that question would come. Because in 2 Peter, he says, regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. For God's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Amen? He's waiting for more people to come to repentance. He's waiting for us to witness to more people. He's waiting for us to pray and seek him that the Lord of the harvest would send out labors to win more people. Amen? He's waiting for his hands and feet to get moving. Amen? So let's be preaching the gospel more. Do you know anybody that really needs to hear the gospel right now? Share it with them. Have the courage to share it. Say, Father, give me strength. Give me courage. He's not sending you out on your own. Jesus said, I won't leave you as orphans. That's why he says, Terry in Jerusalem. 
and the Holy, and then you'll be endued with power from on high. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And then you'll be my witnesses, right? In Jerusalem and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's us. We're the disciples now, amen? Because when he said, go into all the world, making disciples all nations, he says, Lord, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. Because the apostles were supposed to teach others. And as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 2, that they're to teach others and they're to teach others. Down to us. Now it's come to us. So let's be great stewards of the commission that God has given us, amen? And let's not miss the context again. Don't think that God just wants you to go. He does. But he wants you to start by praying. Pray and obey, amen? Trust and obey. Pray and say, Lord, win more people to yourself. And just and say, Lord, help me be a better prayer, amen? Help me to pray more, Lord. Help me take this more seriously. Notice I gave you 10 incentives that Paul gives that were to pray for everyone. And the last one we looked at, which was today, tonight, verse 7, is that the gospel is given to the Gentiles, not just the Jews. Pray for everyone, amen? You know any Gentiles? Anybody know any Gentiles? They're all over the place, amen? amen. Jesus died for them. He doesn't will they perish. Witness them, share the good news with them. Pray that God would give them strength. Invite them to come Friday night. Got people at work, hey, say, hey, you might want to check this out. Give them a little invite, right? Maybe give them the first model, say, check this out. You want to catch number two, it's Friday night. Oh, I asked two people, they didn't come. Come here and watch anyway, get fired up, pray, amen, seek the Lord, you know? A lot of times you were fishing, right? People don't always respond, but we just keep fishing. Keep your line in the water, amen? Be a vibrant witness. Father God, we thank you so much. We love you so much, and I, I thank you, Father.